This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. How the hell are you, Shaul? On a cool, windy October day, I met with Stony Burt in Winder, Georgia, right back where it all began. And though we talk often, it had been a while since I'd been to Winder or seen Stony, and it felt good to catch up. I turned on my recorder and asked him what's changed lately in his life. I value every moment of every day with my family, with life, with people. My whole life's changed. It's like I was half full of a garbage can and somebody emptied me and washed me. That's how I feel compared to before I met you. (laughs) I missed that. I've really missed hanging out with this guy. We've been through quite a bit together in the three years or so since I first knocked on his door and explained to him what a podcast was. I never get tired of hearing how his outlook on life has changed for the better. And unfortunately, not everything in Stoney's life has been perfect lately. No, sir, we've had our difficulties, like everybody, mainly the distillery conflict. But other than that, Sean, I can't report nothing bad. The rock-solid distillery that Stoney and his son Stone opened at the end of season one has been closed since February of this year. I asked him to tell me, in a nutshell, what was going on, the two-minute version. But really, what was I thinking? Because Stoney can't tell any story in only two minutes. I told her, I said, I know what's called you. You know everything. I'm close to you. Smiling, videoed just like I had the other 350 gallon steel in that basement so I can service the 44 states. He said, no. He said, you want to get on phone? Stone was in 900 gallons of whiskey. 20 minutes later, this is basically the gist of it. In season one, Stoney told us that he and his son Stone had made a deal with the man who owns the building in which the distillery sits. That deal was essentially the Burts would put their sweat, money, and construction skills into bringing the nearly dilapidated building back to life and up to code in exchange for signing a 40-year lease on the building and paying a small monthly rental fee. If the distillery failed, they would walk away and the owner could do with the building as he pleased. No hard feelings. But that was before the podcast brought people from all over the country and world to the distillery. Not long after it was released, it seems the property owner must have thought Stoney was suddenly a rich man, and coupled with the rising real estate value of the now usable building, wanted to back out of their deal, and wanted Stoney and the distillery gone, or wanted a lot more money. But Stoney and his family weren't going to back down without a fight. And it got pretty ugly. For the next year, the men had the women in that family ride by every day, shoot birds, cuss customers. I mean, mentally torture us. There's over 300 police reports. They were called every day. It was a joke. So we endured the next year of that. And it went further than just intimidation. There was breaking and entering and theft involved, and they actually had the utilities cut off at the building. They cut the water off. 
broke into the building three times. Each time I called the police and tell them. The water, we had to go send to Dillard to get our water anyway, you know, for our whiskey, but the municipal water we needed, you know, we had to get that pumped in too. But we carried on. The toilet, that got half flush. I just rigged up a drum system using my contractor skills and made it work properly. And we carried on. On and on and on. The harassment never stopped. It was hell. Sean, I've never had to eat that much crow in my life, but I had to endure that. Things got so bad that Stoney was arrested twice in one day for defending his distillery and his pride. And it got worse. The newly appointed city administrator for Winder refused to renew the Burt's license to produce alcohol because some of the paperwork was incorrectly filled out. Padlocks were placed on the front doors and the distillery was closed. That was 10 months ago. They've been stuck in civil court ever since. She refused it for unvalid reason. We applied again. She refused it again. The Winding News asked her why. She gave them a different reason. The Atlantic Journal asked why. She gave them a different reason. Local newspapers picked up the story of the feud between the two parties and showcased it on the front page, causing an outpouring of support for Stoney and his family. The people of this town, bar none, all law enforcement city and county have been absolutely good to us. It is strictly this new administrator. All I want is my son to get his license back and not have one person have to stop it just because she can. It really breaks my heart to hear this knowing how hard this family has worked for this dream of theirs. How much Stoney loves meeting the people that visit the distillery and spinning stories for them. And how much his son Stone loves the art of making whiskey. It truly brings them joy. And every time I've been there, the patrons leave with a smile on their face and a story or two to tell. Stoney still greets people every week who've traveled from far and wide to Winder just to meet him because he doesn't want to let them down. He shows them around town, gives them rides in his Torino Cobra, and recounts stories of his father's escapades. So, in this world, Sean, you do what you have to do to make a living. Man, Stone put the heads together. Construction's always been good to us. But meanwhile, I'm meeting at least 10 and sometimes 25 families from out of town when they call me at the courthouse or the old jail or somewhere, and I'll ride them and show them the sites and, you know, sign their books and having the same fun I did. With any luck, it will all get sorted out one way or the other, and Rock Solid will reopen soon. And when it does, I'll be right there to share a drink with my old friend Stoney. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Season 2 of In the Red Clay. I was outside waiting on my wife and grandkids to pull up when I hear a bulletin over the news that a 50-year-old case in Durham solved the Villa Sunday Burke game. That caught my ear. 
You've heard many sides of Stoney, but there's one that riles him up more than anything. Someone speaking negatively about his father, especially when that someone is Billy Wayne Davis, Bert's former friend and partner turned enemy. When I turned on the TV and looked, it all come to me, some to the effect that a retired GBI agent talking to the son of Billy Bird, who remembered his father talking about being trapped in a snowstorm, connected that to the same Watuga County, the people come see me, and based on that, they went to see Davis uh, over a period of three or four times in two years, I don't know. Immediately after hearing the news of the Durham case, Stoney says he took issue with how this all came together. His father telling his brother Shane about this murder he had committed in North Carolina so long ago. Because my dad did not ever tell nothing. I would ask him something sometimes myself all through the years, and he would say every time, now damn it, son, I gotta buy you a bed sheet for your nose. He didn't talk, Sean, he was a gangster. The only time in his latter years, twice he told something. One, when his hand was shaking, and it come out of him, he said, Stone, you see the hand? If you'll remember, this story Stoney refers to is when Billy Burt was paid to kill a man in Texas. When he arrived, he found that the man was elderly and had Parkinson's disease, and his hands were shaking terribly. Billy said that he didn't want to kill the man and felt sorry for him, but he'd been paid to do the job. Besides, at that point, the man had already seen his face. And he told the story about the man he killed in Texas who was shaking just as bad, and that had been on him all these years. And then he thought about that man every morning, every night. He was giving Stone the lesson, what, what you do comes back to you. Later in life, Bert would develop Parkinson's himself. And looking down at his own shaking hands was a constant reminder of the man he had killed. He felt this was God's way of making him pay for his sins. You reap what you sow. And just before he died, he let me ask him one question, and that was about a local insurance man here who didn't pay off when he wrecked that Torino racing Harold. Tom Locke was a local insurance agent who refused to pay out a claim on Billy Burt's car after an accident. It proved to be a fatal error in judgment for the man. He blew State Farm off the map, they rebuilt. A month later, the first day Tom Locke was in his desk, they found him shot three times and ruled a suicide. Now, that's the only time he's ever talked about in-depth murder, other than the local ones like Jim West and all that he knew about anyway. I figured it out. He could not keep it from me. The only thing he told me outright was if I got something wrong. As far as talking about a murder out of state, no. He would not dare influence my baby brother, who he took on himself such guilt about having to leave him at H2. He might have once seen my father three times in the last 18 years he was living. And the last thing my dad would do would tell his youngest son about a damn murder. Stoney felt that his father only shared the things he did with him because Billy saw young Stoney following in his footsteps and tried at all costs to prevent that. The things he told were used as lessons of what not to do, but it wasn't in Billy to discuss his crimes otherwise. That's why I called it Rock Solid the Book. Everybody associated with him died of natural causes in old age. He never talked. Never talked, much less tell my brother and mess up his young mind. I mean, what father's gonna tell his young son that he's so, so eat up with self-guilt about having to leave? Something horrible. Stoney tells me that with his brother Shane, 
things were different. Shane wasn't old enough to idolize their father the way that Stoney did at the time of Billy's arrest. Because what be the point? It wasn't like when he told Stone why his hand's shaking, he, he regretted killing that man. If he'd have told Shane that, it would have been no point but bragging, impossibility. From everything I do know about Billy Burt, Stoney is right. He was tight-lipped, a true gangster to the very end. By his own admission to Stoney, Burt killed over 100 people, with law enforcement being able to tie 56 of those to him. But he never gave details of those murders to anyone or confessed anything specific. Not to Bob Ingram, the GBI agent involved in the murder case he was eventually sentenced to death for. Not to Jim West, his greatest adversary in law enforcement. And not even to Sheriff Earl Lee, who ironically became his closest friend later in life, taking him off of death row to be baptized in a public church. But I didn't know at that time Shane had been to Bob Ingram trying to get him to help him write a book while my mother building her up to be the true hero of the family as far as us being raised and the money thereof, working four jobs and getting married when she's 12, all that crap. I didn't know that. The few times he did admit to anything was at his murder trial for the 1973 deaths of Reed and Lois Fleming when he confessed to the murders of Warren and Rosina Matthews. Even then, that was purely done to implicate and take down his former partner in crime, Billy Wayne Davis. He told very little, even to Stoney. So does it make sense that he would just blurt this out to his youngest son, Shane, who was only two at the time of his arrest, that he had committed a triple homicide? What would be the benefit in that for Billy or for Shane? I've reached out to Shane and have not heard back from him yet. For Stoney, this goes much deeper. Not only does he not believe his father ever told this story to his brother, he also doesn't believe his father was even at the Durham house. Billy Sunday Burt had a way of doing things. This just didn't fit. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. I heard something that, uh, to put Billy Burr's name on it, it was a joke. And what Stoney means by this is that his father wasn't as sloppy in his work as what the Durham crime scene would suggest. If the motive of the murder was money, why would a bag of money be left behind? Why take silverware, only to leave it in the getaway car? By this point in his criminal career, Burt would not have been nervous committing this crime as would an amateur. And if they were almost caught in the act, I have a feeling that Billy Burt would have handled the situation accordingly, leaving no witnesses. I heard that they left a bag of money in the house. I heard that uh, there was nothing of any, uh, they never found what got taken, if it was anything. I heard they found silverware in the car, so that told me unprofessionals. 
everything I heard pointed to a hit by somebody and the dummies that done it got the silverware and left the damn money. That wasn't Billy Burt. That wasn't the way Billy Burt worked. He didn't mess with silver. He wouldn't even take jury off a person. No, no. Billy Burt was a good at what he does, Sean. I'm not bragging about that. But let's face it, the man killed for 15 years and they couldn't touch him over 100 people. He don't steal silverware and he does not spend the time to drown three people when he just kill them. By 1972, Billy Sunday Burt was a killing machine. Cold, calculated, methodical. He was a professional hitman with one hell of a resume. He was extremely good at his job. There was a bag of money laying in plain sight, yet the intruders opted for the small amount of money in the Durham's wallets and a few pieces of silverware, which, again, were left in the getaway car anyway. That doesn't sound like Bert. And why were the Durham's bodies placed almost strategically in the bathroom, leaning on one another almost as if placed like that intentionally? Virginia died by strangulation, yet she was placed leaning over the bathtub as if she were drowned as Bryce and Bobby were. It feels more personal than professional to me. As I've reviewed the crime scene photos and reports, this really does not appear to have been done by professional contract killers, people who'd been doing this for years. And while the brutality of this crime does bear a strong resemblance to the Fleming murders in Wrens, Georgia, for which Burt was convicted, Burt denied taking any part in that, claiming it was Davis, along with Dixie Mafia members Bobby Jean Gaddis and Charlie Reed, who were responsible. And another big question, Stoney takes aim at Davis's claim that he was the driver in the Durham hit. Saying that Davis is a driver of anything is as ridiculous as saying Billy Burt was a driver. To the contrary, Sean, nobody ever killed in that whole group. Nobody except my father. He done the killing. He knew how to do it. He made it short and sweet to the point. And Davis. But Davis wasn't part of the group. And Davis was sadistic. I mean, he did do the Wrens case. Him and Bobby Gaddis did choke them people to death. And he was a very type that would do that Durham thing, that kind of thing. But to say Davis drove a car in any crime, if he was here, it'd piss him off because that would mean he wasn't Jesse James. He was a flunky. What Stoney is saying is why would someone of Billy Wayne Davis's intellect be reduced to the role of driver? Only the dumbasses drove cars, like Bobby Gaddis. Surely his skills would be far better served inside the Durham's home, where every second and every move that was made counted. No, Davis considered himself equal to my father in all ways. He admired my father because my father put together such a team. Davis didn't have no team, he had himself. What he did have was financial backing. He had a raising, he didn't come up real. He had an influential family. He was in touch with all lawyers. You know, money is a common denominator to friendship. So what Davis had my father didn't was money from the get-go and influential family. And what they seen in each other, he recognized in my father somebody that could do things he couldn't. Not only athletically impossible to other people, but the set of, for lack of a better word, balls that he'd never seen before. He not only met his match, he met his better. 
Him and my father were partners on some things, but he was never involved in my dad with the boys on their thing. Never. Stoney is convinced Davis was never even there. No, I don't think he was. And I would bet harder on Monday, 10 to 1, he was not. Simply because Davis never tailgated nothing. Davis is always the one to set it up from information that people like my dad could not get. When I say that from professionals like lawyers and politicians are high up the ladder information from other criminals. So who hired the alleged hit on the Durham family? The case was closed without that question being answered by law enforcement. And Davis did not provide that answer in his confession. We don't know if it was orchestrated by information coming from someone of higher social standing maybe over a business deal gone wrong with the Durhams, or a common thug simply looking for an easy payday. Stoney thinks Davis cut a deal for his confession. What I'll tell you will be up to how you see it and how anybody else sees it, but to me, it's absolute proof. When I first looked into Billy Wayne Davis in season one, I tried to contact him with the intent of interviewing him. I wrote him a letter, sent it to the Central State Prison in Georgia where he was serving out his life sentence. I never heard a response. Months later, I worked with retired Barrow County Sheriff Joe Robinson and Walton County Sheriff Joe Chapman, and they went to interview Davis regarding the Fleming murder case. Before they met with Davis, Stoney had asked if they'd present him with one of the books he'd written. Stoney included a letter saying he had forgiven Davis for turning on his father and that there were no hard feelings. Davis refused the peace offering out of fear that having the book could get him killed. Somewhere or another, they made a deal with Davis to say, okay, I was driving. And for that, he got a lot. If you consider a nice bed, better food, a lot, which is a big deal. You remember how scared he was in the Macon State Prison during the interview the two sheriffs done who mean you done the podcast? He wouldn't even take the book for fear of a convict would sit and kill him. He wouldn't even let him leave the book with a warden because he didn't trust that son of a bitch. Those are his words. Even as an elderly 78-year-old inmate, Davis was still living in fear for his safety and his life. I guess it's true what they say. In prison, no one likes a snitch. Right around the time of his confession, Davis was moved to a medical prison in Augusta, Georgia. It's safer, better conditions, better care, and better food. Stoney thinks Davis made a deal to get into a prison with better living conditions, since he really has no hope of getting out. If you've been in a state prison for decades eating low-grade prison food, a comfortable bed and good hot meals might go a long way to sway you into cooperating. As part of his confession, Davis was not charged for the role he played in the Durham murders. So for him saying he done the getaway, drove the getaway car, but my daddy and Bobby Gaddis and Charlie done the murder, is obvious to anybody with any common sense, a good deal for him for what he got. Stoney's reasoning as to why he believes Davis would enter into a deal with authorities? Because Davis has done it before. Flashback to 1974, when Billy Burt had just been convicted of bank robbery and other crimes because Davis flipped on him. 
Davis made a deal with Sheriff Earl Lee and ATF Special Agent Jim West that would allow him to be paroled within months of the end of the trial. Bert, on the other hand, would be sentenced to 225 years in prison. But because the judge ordered his sentence to be run concurrently, he ended up with a 25-year sentence in the end. He would be eligible for parole in just seven or eight years, and likely be out in less than a decade, at which time he surely would have sought revenge on Davis, among others like Jim West. So Jim West goes to Davis, he says, son, Billy Burt had just got overturned. I don't know whose family he's going to kill first, mine or yours. You better come up with something fast. And Davis did come up with something to keep Billy Bird in prison for the rest of his life. So he made the deal with Davis right there. If he would tell everything and leave out nothing, every murder that he had any knowledge of, and every murder that Billy Bird done and was willing to testify of that fact, clear himself of all his murders, he would get complete immunity. They made the deal. He testified against my father. It rings. It went down. Bert, Bobby Jean Gaddis, and Charlie Reed were convicted of the Fleming murders in 1975, for which Bert received the death penalty. The idea of Davis making a deal with Jim West, though, up to this point, has not been backed up with any proof. Until now. Stoney has agreed to provide me with proof that Davis made a deal with authorities. A deal that sent Billy Burt to death row. He has never shared this with anyone before now. I have the original transcript of Jim West making the deal with Davis for immunity to kill 18 murders of his own, half of which he was under indictment. Only if he come clean and didn't leave out one on himself and any that Billy Burt done as long as he would testify Billy Burt done it. That list is over 56 long that Davis knew of. Not on himself, he left that out of this. But he gave Jim West a list of his own to take care of. And they took care of him, got him dropped. But the 56 that he told of that he knew my dad done was involved in. If he left that one, that immunity went away. I've got it. The document, the deal, everything. Davis revealed details of 56 murders that Billy Burt had committed all over the South. And Davis himself admitted to 18 murders he had committed in order to receive immunity. Stoney showed me the documents, and it is a disturbingly detailed account by Davis. So, here they are, the murders. The aged yellow paper Stoney pulls out is clearly from the 70s. It's old and worn. The edges are slightly frayed, as you'd expect from a 50-year-old piece of paper. The audio you're about to hear is Stoney showing this document to me for the first time. Out of respect for the dead, I've censored the names to protect their identities. Number one, number one, 1957, Dublin, Georgia, kill a man with an axe. It's verified. Number two, 71, nothing now. 71. Now, this is Davis telling what he knows. This is Davis telling. Uh-huh. This is what's in here. I've, I've narrated. Uh, a girl named Sandra, white female, 27 years old. She was killed because supposedly of Davis, she was going to tell my mother about dating him. 
Number three, four and five. The other women that had informed threatened by their names. Number six, 512-71. Number seven. I recall that name as a family member. Eight was a security guard at the University of Georgia. With the head, head number 10. I won't call that family because that's a gruesome thing. Stoney reads off names on this list, and it begins to really sink in that these are all people murdered by Bert. The list seems to go on and on. This official transcript shows that ATF Special Agents Jim West and Jack Barry, along with Douglasville Sheriff Earl Lee, were present in the meeting that resulted in this document. There were a few notable names missing from that list, though. The Durham's on that list. Why would he leave that out? Especially if he was driving, he'd be the first he told. Think about it, his immune dependent on it. He told some gruesome stuff. At the time this deal was struck, the Durham case was only about two or three years old. That case, being a triple homicide, was a big deal. Why would Davis not include it as part of his immunity or tell about it to further condemn Billy Burt, when instead he told of murders that had happened up to 10 or more years prior? And while I don't necessarily see this as firm proof that Burt took no part in the Durham murders, it does seem odd. Davis is a Billy Burt unto himself. The man had killed over 30 people when my dad met him. And he served nobody. He served Davis. So here's these people, power. Here's Davis being coerced or talked into making Billy Burt a dumping ground. Billy Burt has done enough murders and enough crime and enough awful things that the truth is bad enough. It don't need any help. And that's what he's been allowed to do. If you take Davis and look at him, he's a stand-up guy. He is. Think about this. He knows as many people, probably as my father. He was the common denominator of that group of influence. Just as my father was common denominator of what we deem to be George's Dixon Mafia. Stoney clings to every last thread of dignity he can for his father, regardless of the crimes he's guilty of. Really, that's what unconditional love between a father and son is. Davis and Billy Burt had it out for each other from the time they both went to prison, turning on one another and telling of murders that were committed for the sole purpose of making sure the other would stay in prison for life. Could this new confession be Davis simply getting the last word in, the final stake in the heart of Billy's Sunday Burt? Today, so many years later, there's no one left alive to call Davis a liar, other then, of course, Stoney. I'm not here to defend the honor of Billy Sunday Burt, my father. And that was all the way through the first season 
was an emotional ride for me. I mean, I was holding on like a, like a kid in a tornado. I didn't know what was happening to me. Everything that came out of me was spontaneous, and <laughs> I had no idea it was going to change my life the way it has. This thing you're doing right now, we're doing, I'm a part of, I'm not out to belittle law enforcement. I'm not out to stain the career of Bob Ingram. I'm not out to take away from the hard work of any police. And I say again, I'm not out to defend the honor of my father. Because we all know by now that he is perfectly capable of this or any other crime he deemed worthy of his time, effort, money, whatever. This is a stark reminder of who Billy Burt really was and what he was capable of. No amount of love from his son could change that. His life pretty well spoke for itself. We all know that he would key for a damn nickel. He would key if he if it suited him. I'm simply here putting myself back out there again, wide open for anybody to take a punch at me. Because it just don't damn taste good the way they've done it again. They have they have circumvented jury, grand jury, judge, trial, the whole shaboom. Took an exceptionally awful case and allowed Davis to, once again, without a polygraph, without anything, say, okay, yeah, if that's the deal, I was driving the same three that I said killed the Wrens, done it. Now, send me to a better place and feed me meat or whatever his deal was, me and you'll never know. It ain't in me to sit back and allow that to become history without a rebuttal. <laughs> the facts of this case that I've read from reports I've seen, and on the other hand, knowing my father the way I did for the last 45 years of his life, I mean, I intimately knew I could finish his sentence on some things. Stoney's intimate knowledge of his father is what he ultimately relies on when he says Billy Bird had no part in the Durham murders. My sole motive in even talking about this case, knowing that it's going to be out there for that family, everybody to dissect every word I say, and they might see it as me sticking my nose into it. But my sole motive is because my father has no one to defend him except me. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and recorded the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound design by Shane Freeman. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Season two of In the Red Clay, Durham, is a six-episode series with new episodes available every Monday. To keep up with this and my other podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the series, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.
Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.